You know, we've been going through a mini-series. I haven't really coined it that, but that's exactly what it is. It's a mini-series about struggling with fear and anxiety, and we've talked about how we need to meet that with courage and boldness, and, um, you know, I hope you've enjoyed the things that we've been talking about, but I thought I'm going to bring it to a capstone today, kind of finish it off, tie it up in a nice little bow, and so if you turn with me to um, 2 Thessalonians, I'd like to read to you from 2 Thessalonians, the first chapter. But before that, really I think it boils down to two choices. It's kind of binary. We either yield to ourselves and give in to fear and struggle with anxieties and so forth and just be generally miserable Because yielding to ourselves is really yielding to the flesh in Pauline language, right? The flesh, the sin that still remains within these mortal bodies. Or we yield to the Spirit. When we yield to the Spirit, we understand that the Spirit is in opposition to the flesh. It's the opposite of the flesh. It battles with the flesh. And it manifests itself in a completely different set of values that come into the life then. You have love and you have joy and you have peace, okay, rather than fear and, and anxiety. You have gentleness and goodness and kindness, faith and faithfulness, if you will, and self-control. Well, today I'd like to put this capstone on our little mini-series about living in this present, confusing, and often frightening time, because it is. I, <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've told our elders, we just need to calm our people. We need to pray with them. We need to just calm people. Some of you are facing October 1st. <laughs> you know what happens on October 1st, right? We have given out letters of religious exemption to those who have requested it because they're facing being fired. Never a time like that. I've never experienced a time like this. Well, let me read to you from the text, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm starting verse 3. We'll skip the, the greeting. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows even greater. And therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Therefore, or these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always, that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, take these words written by the Apostle Paul so long ago to the church at Thessalonica. It was a new church, 
It was a young church, and yet it was filled with so many of the Christian virtues. And they were active in their service of you, even in the midst of persecution, suffering, and affliction. They faced false teachers coming and telling them that the day of the Lord had already come, and their loved ones were left behind. Father, they were suffering. And Paul writes into that context to encourage them. May your words be encouraging to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Now, the title of the sermon is A Prayer for spiritual, Spiritually Elegant Lives. And um, when my wife heard that, she said, why are you using the word elegant? Well, I love the word elegant. I love the word elegant. You may be wondering, is a spiritually elegant life, what, what is it? What are you talking about? Well, that's just what you're going to be learning today because I'm going to talk all about the spiritually elegant life. But the word elegant needs a little explanation at the outset. I use the word elegant in a sense of something that is refined in grace or dignified propriety. That, that's, that's Webster's, right? I mean, how can you get your arms around that? A secondary meaning is tasteful, richness of design, or ornamentation. We're getting closer to what a spiritually elegant life looks like. Another meaning of this word could be in the description of a piece of writing, like a book or a poem. It's an idea or a plan that is elegant. It means that it is simple and clear. Simple and clear. It's not got a lot of confusion around it. And the document impressed me with its elegant simplicity. I love words. Um, I've been reading a book about the writing of the Oxford English Dictionary. What a book. The meaning of all things. It's just amazing. Paul closes off the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 with a prayer. And his prayer is an expectation that the Thessalonians would live spiritual, spiritually elegant lives. That's what he was praying for in the last two verses, verses 11 and 12. And this prayer came right after his most encouraging words about their love for one another, verse 3. They loved, each one loved one another. That means everybody's loving everybody. And their persecutions and afflictions, they were suffering, and yet that love was flowing. You see that in verse 4. And their worthiness of the kingdom of God, that's encouraging. That's in verse 5. That Paul was telling him, you are worthy of the kingdom of God. God has deemed you worthy to be a part of his kingdom. And he also talks about God's just judgment on those who afflicted them. Verses 6 through 9, he kind of gives a little uh, parentheses there and talks about, don't worry. Yes, they're heaping all sorts of problem upon you. They're afflicting you. But God will pay them back with the affliction that they're afflicting you. You don't have to take it on yourself. And summing it all up, he spoke of the wonderful truth that Jesus will be glorified in his saints on that day. Jesus will be glorified in his saints. That's an interesting concept. And he will be marveled at among all who have believed. And that's found in verse 10. His encouraging words were addressed to a church that was being tempted with serious misgivings and erroneous teaching that said the day of the Lord had already come. They missed it. They were unsettled, a bit confused, and under heavy, heavy oppression. But the day of the Lord hadn't come. Not at all. And the Thessalonians needed to be challenged afresh with living spiritually elegant lives. Right then and there, as they were suffering persecution, affliction, and trouble. And there's never a time specifically set apart, selected and anticipated, in which we can finally start living spiritually. Some people wait for that. Some Christians wait for that time when they can finally give time to study the Word. Or finally, they can actually 
have their devotions like they did when they were first saved. Beloved, let me tell you, the time is now. (laughs) There is no time set apart. We are to be doing that right now and every day. Unless we're referring to heaven, that's a time that's set apart. But then such living will be by sight, not by faith, right? Then we will be able to live spiritually, obviously, rejoicing in the presence of the Lord forever. It's not going to require faith because whatever is seen is not faith, and we will see him as he is then. So don't wait for that to live spiritually. You will, but you don't wait for that. It's only now that we can experience the enabling grace of God. And I love that phrase, the enabling grace of God. But for the grace of God, we could not do anything that would be pleasing to God. It's only now that we can experience the enabling grace of God and the Holy Spirit's power to live in such a way that might be identified as being spiritually elegant. Okay? Living a spiritually elegant life is not some strange doctrine that I've pulled out, but it may have become almost forgotten as a way of life. Paul, when writing to Titus, encouraged him to tell the people that he ministered to that they should adorn the doctrine of God. Adorn the doctrine of God. You see that in Titus 2.10. You can make a note of that. And the word used for adorn is cosmeo, where we get cosmos, cosmos from. It's the same word that we get cosmetics from. And what are cosmetics for, ladies? It's to enhance that beauty that you already have so that you're even more beautiful. Or as a teacher in Bible school told me, if the barn needs painting, paint it. He said it, not me. I mean, I'm just quoting him, okay? The idea is to arrange something, to adorn, to arrange something into its proper order and thereby provide a certain symmetry and beauty then. And we might even say, so that it would become elegant. So adorn the doctrine of God. Live elegantly spiritual lives. Now, in the Christian life, it... it, it, It's not the external things. It's not outwardly physical appearance that speaks to a watching world, but rather the inner beauty and the virtue of a transformed heart. That's what shouts out that we're different. That's what shouts out to the watching world that doesn't have the enabling grace of God or the power of the Holy Spirit to live the way we live in the face of affliction, trouble, hard times, confusion, stress, etc., It's a transformed heart manifested through a transformed life. We are not who we once were. And our family will notice that. And our work at our workplace, if we get saved, and we were working there before we were saved, they'll notice that there's a change. A life that is marked by Christian virtue, i.e., the the spirit, the fruit of the spirit. Galatians 5.22. That is why Peter encouraged the women that he was ministering to to live in this way. Quote, let not your adornment be merely external, braiding of the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. The hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit. You know, our hearts are so important. I I love meeting new Christians that come into the kingdom with, or into the church with, with baggage. I love talking with them. Because a lot of people kind of look at them kind of cocked. You know, like, are they or aren't they? And I always go to their heart. Where's their heart at? What do they love now? What do they hate that they didn't hate before? And I don't care how much baggage they have. It doesn't matter to me. God takes care of that baggage. I remember when we first preached the gospel to the Taliabal people. They were in loincloths and the women were topless. Those that were nursing mothers. Okay, And uh, there were some really ardent Taliabal men that came to us as the missionaries and said, you need to get those people dressed. They had had some experience down on the coast. So they were 
you know, experienced Taliabo people. And they said, these people are like hillbillies. You need to make them put clothes on. I said, ah, it'll come. It'll come. They're chewing betel nut in the service. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it'll drop off. And I had to just calm these brothers. And it did. It did. We didn't have to tell them, you need to start dressing when you come to church. You know, you can't come to church in a towel. You know, we didn't have to do that. That's all external stuff. We knew that there was a transformed heart in these Taliabo people, and that came in time. They never wore ties. Remember when we ordained the first elders and deacons, they all had ties on, and we got them shoes. <laughs> that was so funny. We had to get shoes like two or three sizes larger than the length of their foot because their feet were so spread out from being barefoot all their lives. And it was so abnormal. But we did it because we had the Muslim governor come in and witness this thing. I'll tell you, it's a heart, people. A transformed heart. Let not your adornment be merely external. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. So in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 and 12 today, we have a prayer for the believers prayed for by their apostle or church planter, Paul. And there are at least three elements of Paul's prayer that help us understand the teaching that the way we live really does matter, people. That's why I'm calling you to live spiritually elegant lives. In Paul's prayer, we're going to see the basis of his prayer. We'll see the intent of his prayer, what his object was for praying. And then we'll see the outcome of his prayer as we go to it. So let's look at the first portion of these two verses, the basis of Paul's prayer in verse 11. It says, To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. To this end, in verse 5. Now there's a lot of play between these two verses that I'm going to be talking about, 11 and 12, and verse 5. Verse 5 reads, This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So there's a lot of play there. God's righteous judgment. In verses 6 through 10, like I said, it forms something like a parenthesis that explains how God would exact that judgment on those that were persecuting and causing affliction to the Thessalonians. And we can see it from three different perspectives how God is going to exact that judgment. Now, the first perspective in verse 5 is a perspective from the persecuted, the Thessalonians. Their suffering was not wasted. And that's what Paul wanted them to understand. It wasn't wasted. You're not suffering needlessly, people. In fact, it actually provided a proof of their salvation. It's kind of like folks that struggle with a sin in their life and, and they start worrying, I must not be saved. I just keep on committing this sin. I hate it. I just hate it. Beloved, that's, a, that's an affirmation <laughs> that you're saved. If you weren't saved, you wouldn't care. You'd just indulge in the sin. The actual battle that you're doing with that sin that you hate is an indication that you've got a regenerate spirit that is opposing that sin that you're caught up in. It will pass. If you keep fighting against it, it will pass. You'll get victory. So it was a proof of their salvation, while at the same time, it was a proof of their opponent's destruction. Being a plain indication means that their persecution and afflictions brought with them something they should not, could not, better not miss. It would be God who would exact judgment on their behalf. They didn't need to pick up arms. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And that's what Paul is telling them. Secondly, not only from the perspective of the persecuted, but from the perspective of the perspective of the persecutors in verses six and seven. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, 
Those who were persecuting the believers at Thessalonica would meet the justice of God. Whether they believed in God or not, mattered not. The judgment of God, which is righteous, is based on the reality of a great spiritual principle. God is just. He will repay. Remember that, people. And remember it as the days get darker. It is not our job to seek vengeance. Whether or not the persecutors believed it or not, as I said, and they typically don't believe it, it's sure because God said it. Thirdly, we see this whole thing from the perspective of God rejectors in verses 8 through 10. The judgment of God would be experienced by all those who did not know God and to those who did not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I get a little bit worried here in the United States because we have things so easy, seriously. I mean, even as we're suffering, we have things really easy. Um, And it's not that these people that have rejected God and don't believe in him are just going to be kind of left on their own like they are now, right? I mean, there's people that you know and I know that reject God and reject the gospel, and we just kind of leave them to themselves, right? They, they don't want what we have offered them and told them about, and we just kind of leave them to themselves, and they just kind of go about their lives hating God, hating Christians, doing their sin, loving the world and everything in it, and so forth. That's not the way it's going to be, people, and this is what worries me. They will face eternal damnation. They will face an eternity separate from God and His presence. Maybe we shouldn't just leave them go on. Maybe we should pester them in a loving way, a respectful way. They will face the judgment of God. It'll be their destruction, not their annihilation, their destruction. That word destruction means that they will experience a drastic and ruinous loss of quality of life. Life which God created them to experience because he made them in the image of himself, but they have rejected his offer of salvation, redemption, regeneration, and so they will face a ruinous and drastic loss of the kind of life God had prepared for them because they will experience the absence of the presence of God. God is eternal life. They will be outside the presence of his love, of his mercy, of his forgiveness, of his grace, and their experience will go on forever. Now, if you're sitting here today and you've just been coming to church and kind of putting a good show on, but you know in your heart of hearts that you're not a true believer, that is what you have to look forward to. It's serious. It's so serious. And I don't say that to shame you or chide you. I say that to call you to faith in Jesus Christ. Accept what he has done on your behalf on the cross. Back in verse 5, Paul is referring to the glorious future that the Thessalonians would have when each saint would enter the kingdom of God and every sinner will be cast into hell. It's a future thing that, that Paul is talking about on that day. Every saint, and specifically those in Thessalonica, because that's who he's writing to, had already been considered or counted or reckoned worthy of the kingdom. So he's assuring them, this is going to take place. You have believed, and you're enduring suffering. But here in verse 11, look at it. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness, etc. In verse 11, it's the present. He's not talking about the future time. Paul wants them to show by the manner of their daily lives the characteristics and power of the world to come, which they are partakers of, though they're not experiencing it yet in fullness. So that just as in the future when the saints are glorified at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, they need to show it to the world now. That's why we can show joy in the face of very, very dire circumstances. 
That's why we can have peace now, a fruit of the Spirit, even though we're suffering possibly. And that is what speaks out to a watching world that doesn't have that peace or doesn't have that joy, people. And so we see in very real sense the basis of Paul's prayer is all wrapped up in God's calling of the believers and they're secure as to their part in the kingdom of God. That is the basis of Paul's prayer. Secondly, the intent of his prayer now. He goes into the intent as we see the second part of verse 11, that our God may count you worthy of calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power. I want to break that down. Do you ever find when you're reading the scripture, it just kind of, you kind of go, what on earth does that mean? I mean, the wording there, and fulfill every desire for goodness. What on earth does that mean in, in layman's terms? In terms that we can understand, right? And then he goes on, and the work of faith with power. What, what are you saying, Paul? What are you trying to get across to the Thessalonians? Well, here's where it gets really good, and here's where that spiritual elegance of life comes in. Okay? That little word, that. You see it? He says, to this end also we pray for you always, that, that. It is hina, H-I-N-A, in the Greek, and it's often in a clause, a hina clause. It's a purpose clause, okay? Uh, oftentimes it's, it's translated as um, for the purpose of, or so that, or in order that. It's all just translating that one little word, hina. So this is the intent or object of Paul's prayer. What is that? Well, that our God may count you worthy of your calling, reflecting back to verse 5 again. Their sufferings were not meritorious. This is interesting to look at. Some may read verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. Some might take that and they might say, so if you suffer well, you'll be counted worthy to go into the kingdom. My mom believed that for many, many years until she heard the gospel. She thought her suffering was racking up merit with God. She had many operations, many, many surgeries, and um, she used to just rehearse those operations. We, we knew what was happening in life according to what operation she was having. Now, she did have six sons, so give her a break, right? But she got saved, and I joyed to speak at her funeral in another denomination. The priest allowed me to stand up and give a eulogy, and I said, you know, Eva, for many, many years, she always talked about her suffering for Jesus. I suffered for Jesus. I had this illness. I was in a tuberculosis asylum, and you know. And I said, until she heard the gospel, and I gave the gospel real plainly, I said, then her suffering changed, and she said, He suffered on my behalf. He was suffering for me on that cross. Well, when it came time for my father's funeral, the priest wouldn't let me give a eulogy. He just said, no way. So I got to do it at the wake, not the church. <laughs> it's not that you suffer that gains merit. That, that's not what this is about at all. In fact, what's really interesting, it was because their sufferings were the outcome of having already been counted worthy, and that's why they were suffering, because they were saved. You see how that is? They were suffering affliction and, and persecution because they were believers. And they were saved by faith, not by any effort on their own. So here in part B of verse 11, the same holds true. But instead of future reward being in focus in verse 11, Paul's referring to their daily testimony. Paul prayed that the Thessalonians' lives would be a demonstration of spiritual elegance even as they suffered affliction and persecution. And as I said, Webster's Dictionary defines elegance as 
grace and refinement in appearance, in movement, in manners. Everything that believers did in their everyday lives was to be worthy of their calling. It was to shout out, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Now some of us are being forced to say that by a mandate. (laughs) Isn't God funny? In the Jerusalem church, he had to bring persecution to get them to do what he told them to do, which was go into all the world and preach the gospel. He brought persecution, which scattered the saints all over. Here today, we have a mandate coming down from the government that is making many Christians get letters of exemption for religious purposes, which is basically saying they're putting a great big C on their chest. I am one of them. I am a Christian. And you may not have done that prior, right? (laughs) I mean, you've been a Christian. You've been kind. You've helped people. You might have even prayed for one or two. But now all bets are off. You're out. You're out. That's good. It's good. So let me say this, that we, as believers, even as the Thessalonians, need to live our lives in such a way that they're worthy of our calling, worthy of their calling. It is the same for us in every thought, in every attitude, in every action. It is the will of God that we live in harmony with who he has called us to be. What does spiritually elegant does a spiritually elegant life look like? Well, the Bible describes it clearly as one that is marked by a supernatural joy, a joy that isn't linked to the circumstances. It's a life that exhibits peace, that passes understanding. In times when, humanly speaking, there should be no peace of mind at all, of heart or soul. Spiritual elegance is a life that exercises love, and it's a love that's not self-serving or self-gratifying but it's focused outward and toward others. It is a God-glorifying love. In short, it is a spirit-filled life. Living lives worthy of our calling are lives that are manifest by the fruit of the Spirit, and that is a spiritually elegant life. Now, he uses the word calling here again, and I think I need to help you to understand what that word calling means, because I think sometimes we you know, could get it confused and say, I haven't heard anything. (laughs) It's not that. That's not what he's talking about. And some would say, well, does that just mean called to salvation? Yeah, but it's more than that. That little word calling there is used like the term crown is when speaking of a king. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've heard something like this. Hear ye, hear ye, a message from the crown. It means the king. Right? So it's kind of inclusive. Or, or you could say, um, that thought is higher than the heavens, where the heavens encompass everything. Right? That, that's what it's meaning. This call is all-inclusive. The term includes everything from the first workings in the heart all the way through to its eternal state of bliss with God forever in your glorification. That is the definition of calling. And that's what Paul was assuring them of. You've got it. Now live like it. Where there is no more sin, no more temptation bothering our worship of God in that glorious state, Paul is calling believers to live like this now. Live in that reality. Why? Well, he goes on with more intent. That God may fulfill every desire for goodness. Now, what on earth does that mean? Well, the second part of the intent, Paul's prayer, is that believers would experience a sense of well-being that comes from delighting in goodness. You delight in goodness. Wait, listen, there was one time where I didn't delight in goodness. I delighted in evil, and so did you when you were unsaved. That Delighting in goodness is motivated by God, but it's enjoyed by us. This is part of the regenerate spirit that we have. The goodness here literally means 
to possess a contented outlook or attitude toward all of life. It, it should remind us of Paul's words in Romans 15, 14. Mark this down. Romans 15, 14. And concerning you, my brethren, Paul wrote to the believers at Rome, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. You're full of goodness, and you're filled with all knowledge, and you're able to admonish one another. We're able to come alongside each other and admonish one another, counsel one another, if you will. Possibly Galatians 5.22 could be used where goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. And we have the fullness of goodness in us. And then he goes on to give another intent, that God may fulfill the work of faith with power. The third and final aspect contains in the intention of Paul's prayer is that believers' faith would be active, growing, rather than static and stagnant. It is a faith that works. You say you believe. Show me your works. You don't get saved by works, but if you're saved, you will work. We have a saying here that we've coined at Beacon of Hope. We're saved to serve, right? Well, I've added something to that for just a little bit more kick, right? We're saved to serve, not sit. Okay? Not sit. Get up. Get going. That's what Paul's talking about. This is exactly what James spoke of when he declared faith without works is dead. The spiritually elegant life is a life that is actively engaged in ministry in accordance with the gifts that God has given each one of you at the time of your salvation. Do you know what your gift is, and are you functioning in that gift? If not, why not? Right? I mean, this, this is... Christianity 101, people, I'm telling you. This is not like lofty ivory tower apologetics or something, or even theology. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 and verse 11, this is what we read. Listen to this very clearly. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. That means you have been given a gift. To each one of you is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Your gifts are not for your personal edification. Your gifts are for the church, for the edification, the building up, the encouragement of the body of believers around you. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, all these gifts, distributing these gifts to each one individually just as he wills. That's why I don't believe in sitting in a group with people and trying to learn how to speak in tongues by repeating after the group leader. Tongues was a gift of the Spirit. Frankly, I don't believe that they're functioning today in a normative fashion. Might God use them in a different country or something? Sure, God is God. He can do whatever he wants. But they don't operate in a normative fashion. And wherever they're practiced, in mass, in churches, and I've been all over the world in churches where they are, the churches are a mess. I'll just say that flat out. They're disorderly at best. So we've each been given a gift by the Spirit of God according to His will. I'm looking out at a bunch of gifts here. Let's use those gifts to encourage one another in the body. And then he says... It's with power. I love that. And those of you that have been believers for a long time, you know that power word, right? Dunamis. Dynamite. That's what we have within us. And that's the way that we should be living. It shows the incredible balance that the Bible constantly presents to us. On the one hand, we're encouraged to diligently add to our faith, like in 2 Peter chapter 1. Diligently add to your faith these things, Right? But we're also warned, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It seems like a paradox. We're to be diligent to add to our faith. We're to be diligent, intentional about doing some things, but we need to remember that it is God that's working in us. See, he motivates us. It's, it's so cool. I often use the illustration, you've got to put your foot in the water 
before the river parts, right, where you can walk across it, an Old Testament illustration. The thing is, is, is when you put your foot in the water or when you intentionally go to do what you believe God would have you to do, he like supercharges your weakness and makes it powerful, dunamis. Jump in, the water's great. It's God's power that energizes and accomplishes all that we've just discussed in the believer's life. Living lives worthy of our calling. Living with a contented outlook on all of life. Goodness. Living a life that fulfills the work of faith that God has prepared for us. You have been saved, right? I think it's Ephesians 2.10. Okay? There are works that have been prepared for you from before the foundation of the world that you should walk in them. It's a great way to wake up every morning. Okay, Lord, I know there's works prepared for me from before the foundation of the world. Please tell me what those are today that I might fulfill them. That's walking moment by moment with God. That's an elegant life. God counts people worthy, and therefore they endeavor to do that which he works in them. It's a matter of the intentional will in a person to do that which God's word tells us, and so thereby pleasing him. But it's not to get his merit or an attaboy. We are complete in Christ. It is finished. We do it because we're saved, people. It's God who initiates the stirring in our hearts, and then we diligently endeavor to do that for which our hearts have been stirred, and then it is God who comes alongside and supercharges our, our meager efforts. It's a walk of faith. It's a Christian life. And that is spiritual elegance in its essence. The only thing that prevents a person from living the spiritually elegant life is what? Sin. Simple proposition, right? This is not complex stuff. Told you. So, just to sum up, we have identified the basis of Paul's prayer. That is the secure calling of God of believers into his kingdom. And we've also seen the intent of his prayer that every believer would fulfill every desire for goodness and actively pursue the works of faith by the power of God. Now, last point the expected result of Paul's prayer. We see this in verse 12. In order that, another Hena clause, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this brings us full circle. All of life, and this is is what I really want you to listen to, all of life is to be lived for the glory of God, all of life. It is a purpose for which we have been created as human beings. The Westminster Catechism asks, what is man's or humanity's chief aim? Why have we been created as human beings? And it answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Don't leave off that last part. The Bible does not teach that Christianity is a segmented or a siloed life where you've got this silo here for work or that silo there for family. You know, some people think, well, I do spiritual things on Sunday or at least Sunday morning when I go to church and then in the afternoon I do family things. We have dinner together and join each other's company. Then Monday morning I do work things. And I do that all week long, maybe with a little break midway on Wednesday because then I do a couple spiritual things by going to Bible study. But then Thursday morning I go back to work things again. And if I'm really fortunate, on Saturday I get to do some recreational things sometimes. And life is like all these little silos, all these little segments. That is totally unbiblical. You can't find that anywhere in the Scripture, people. And if we live our lives like that, we're living at the lowest possible level as believers. All of life is to be Christ-centered and God-focused. All of life is spiritual. 
That's the biblical view. Even when at work or with family or enjoying recreation, the Bible sees life as unsegmented and devoted to the Lord and Savior. The segmented life is something that men have created on their own. It's not biblical, and it tends to spiritual barrenness and a lack of joy in living. Verse 12 tells us that we're to live so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified. It's all-inclusive. Name means everything to do with Jesus. It's not just Jesus. It's one of those words that includes everything, his whole character and all of his attributes. And in the living, we receive overwhelming blessings of the Christian life. But Paul never lets those blessings become the focal point of his prayers. Rather, he's always careful to bring everything back to what? The glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want you to think that we don't get anything out of this. We're supposed to be enjoying him forever. (laughs) That's that last part of why we've been created, right? It's all for the glory of Jesus Christ, for not one of us lives for himself, not one dies for himself, for if we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whatever we, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's, Romans 14. That, that's the biblical view of our lives, not segmented. And in the case of the Thessalonians, Paul prayed that they would live for the glory of Jesus Christ, whether they're suffering persecution or hoping against hope about the second coming, even though they're being taught by teachers wrong doctrine about that. Paul reminded them that through it all, their faithfulness would certainly result in the name of the Lord Jesus being glorified. And then he says this this little phrase, again, a little bit cryptic, this these two verses, he says, in you and you in him. What? What? It's our union with Christ. We, as believers, are in Christ Jesus. We're united with him, right? Clearly points out that the Thessalonians, it points the Thessalonians away from their own trouble-filled lives to that glorious day when all tears would be wiped away. We're in him. And he's in us. Paul's pointing them toward their glorification. That time at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, he will return in glory. But the glorification will be reciprocal because it goes on to say, and you and him. Now, you've got to be thinking of a verse, right? You've got to be thinking. You and him. This is linked back to verse 10 where it says, when he comes, he'll be glorified in his saints on that day. The glory will be reflected in the saints like mirrors reflect an image. He'll be glorified in his saints because we'll finally and fully be an open display of what he has accomplished for and in us. 1 John 3, 2 has got to be running in your minds. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know, certain, we're certain of it, we know that when he appears, at the second coming or the rapture, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is, face to face. Glorious truth. The expected result of Paul's prayer is that the spiritually elegant life will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ our Lord will glorify his saints. Comes full circle. It's a complete unit. Will you allow him to transform your life to become one of his saints, living a spiritually elegant life? Invite him to do that for you. Invite him to kickstart your spirituality. Let him do what he needs to do in your life so It can be so. And do it now. Don't wait. Closing this morning's sermon, the last part of verse 12 says, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, every last bit of everything that we have been discussing is all ours solely based on the undeserved favor of God. 
I mean, every time we pray, we pray to a God who created the entire universe. That alone should just quiet us and fill our lives with incredible joy that we can talk with him. His gracious offer of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ presents all these glorious riches to the likes of us, you and me, sinners all, all culminating in glorification. We are when he is. Okay? We are when he is. Now this shows our essential and unbreakable unity with the Lord Jesus Christ, and this unity will finally and forever be revealed at the second coming. He in us and us in him. So believer, no matter what you're facing, rejoice. Get your eyes on things above. Go to the scriptures and read them and refresh your souls. Encourage your hearts, even if you're suffering right now. Maybe even more so if you're suffering right now. Go to the word and let him speak to you and encourage your heart. He longs to do that. He died for you. You think he doesn't want you to be filled with the joy that he's provided for us? He does. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we're so given to fear and to be troubled with many things. Father, help us as your children on this earth to turn to you in these troubles. And this troublesome time, it is. Nobody denying that. But Lord, it's the way that we respond to them. Help us not to be like the world around us. Help us to stand out with those spiritually elegant lives, Lord, that they might ask for a reason of the hope that is in us and we might be able to share with them clearly, it's Jesus. I trusted Christ X number of years ago, and since then my life has changed because they're longing for that, Lord. They're living under the wrath of God right now. It abides over them, Father. And if something doesn't happen where they trust you and trust your gospel, that wrath is going to fall on them. Help us to be good testimonies of what you've done in our lives. For your glory and for our enjoyment, we pray. Amen.